The goal is to finish Job tonight. And it's looking like it might happen. <laughs> I'm going to open to Job 42, chapter 42. And we're going to look at verses 7 through 17 of Job 42. This is the longest book I've preached through. No, granted, we did not go verse by verse, but we did cover every single uh, category in, in the book. Uh, so I'm feeling rather accomplished in, 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 in that. I'm serious. I, I'd love to preach a series through Genesis, but I'm afraid of the length of it, Isaiah 2. Um, so I, I've started preparing several times for a series on the happy side of Isaiah, which is 40 to the end, and uh, just uh, can't get the courage to actually make it. Uh, uh, I, I, can't, I can't stand the thought of looking at Nick and then he telling me that I'm going to take 55,000 sermons to finish uh, uh, the book. So. Wouldn't you give me a hard time with that? You wouldn't? Okay. All right. But I do, I'm trying to get better. I do think that's not beneficial to spend so much time in a book. I know that some Puritans, there's a Puritan spent 10 years in the book of Job. And has, a, no, the sermons are published in a long collection of volumes. And so what you end up is not really sermons on Job. It's you know, probably really good sermons on something, but... To stretch that long, you probably are finding things that are not necessarily in, in the book. Uh, so, um, so eleven sermons, Nick. Tonight's the eleventh sermon, so that uh, you know there. I might mention that a few times as we go, just to. Uh. So we're left with the epilogue. If you look at uh, even the formatting, you're going to see that there's a change as we come to here to the end. It's not rendered in poetic format anymore. It's it's rendered as. Uh, uh, narrative, and it is really a narrative. It's a conversation, of, uh, well, mostly God speaking and people saying yes, sir, uh, as we go through these uh, last few verses of the book. And you can really divide easily this epilogue into three parts. You now, it seems like preachers always see things into three parts, but the epilogue is really divided into uh, three parts. You can see in verses seven through nine God's assessment of Job and his friends. Uh, what I mean by assessment, that God gives, tells us what's going on with them, and so on. And then we have Job's intercession for his friends in verses 8 and 9. So just think about it. These guys have been um, haunting Job, right, for the entire book. And now God tells them, Job, I'm going to forgive them, and I'm going to forgive them because you are going to pray for them. And that's what happens there in the second session. And in the third section is Job's restoration, which is the longest part in verses 10 through 17, where uh, possessions are given back to Job in double. Uh, he has the, the, the ten children again. seems like his wife is, is restored to him there at the end. So those are the three parts that we're going to look at. But look, let's look at the first part, God's assessment of Job and his friends in verses 7 through 9. It says this, and so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bowls, 
and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job uh, has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Damathite, went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. So after accepting Job's repentance in verse 6, remember in verse 6, Job says, I abhor my, myself and repent in dust and ashes. God moves to respond to Job's confession of sin. And Job's repentance serves as the hinge on which the story turns as God responds in grace to the, his contrite heart. God receives Job's repentance as we, we see by what God does. You know, he never says... Um, I forgive you, Job, but he, in, by his actions we see that he has forgiven and accepted Job back. And God's, so, and, and we see that God's acceptance of Job's repentance in, uh, implied in that God moves from Job now to the friends in verses 7 through 9. Now, there are two preliminary points to be made about God's assessment of the three friends. While God's assessment applies to all three of Job's counselors, he only addresses Aliphaz. Why? Notice that he only speaks to Aliphaz. Any ideas why that's the case? He's the oldest. He's the oldest, okay. What else? He spoke first, okay. What else? Well, I think these two things are, are right on. And also, Eliphaz spoke the most. If you just count words, Eliphaz was the most prolific. It's interesting that um, God addresses him instead of the other ones, in that he was the least caustic of the three friends. You know, uh, the other two were much more aggressive towards Job than Eliphaz was, so you'd think that God would be addressing them, but he addresses Eliphaz, who was the spokesperson, spokesman of the group, the, 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 maybe the elder statesman of the group, the one that uh, was the leader of the group. The, thing, the second thing is important to notice is the person who is not named. You notice that there is one name that doesn't appear in this? Elihu, right? And He's not mentioned in the rebuke, which led us earlier on, when we considered his speech, the six chapters that he spoke in the book, we led it to us to conclude that he was a good guy, not a bad guy. That what he did was right, because God doesn't rebuke him at the end. So those are the preliminary things. Now, two things to note as far as what God says to them. Look at the beginning of verse 7. And when you look at the beginning of verse 7, it is clear that God has a negative assessment of their advice and actions. It says, And to, so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. God doesn't leave any room for guessing here. Wow, well, were those guys right? I don't know. God says, you're wrong, and my wrath is aroused upon you. 
And the second thing we see here is that God vindicates Job's actions, at least some of his actions. If you look at verse 7, at the end of the verse, it says, You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So God says that Job was right, and the friends weren't. And you might say, but you told us that Job was shaking his fist at God, that God confronted him for chapters on end with questions because he was proud, because he was questioning God, he was trying to bring God into a lawsuit. How can now, as Linda appropriately asked last week, how can now God says that what Job did was right? Well, Job wasn't correct in his shaking his fist at God, but he wasn't correct in what he was saying about the friends, right? The, what was the friend? What was the friends? What were the friends saying about Job? Remember, you're suffering because you sinned, right? And Job says, "No, I have sinned. I have not sinned that to bring this this uh, suffering. I've been righteous inside of God, and so on." And God says, "Yes, Job is right." And Job is also right in saying that suffering doesn't only come because of sin. So uh, the friends were saying God only punishes those who sin. And, God, and Job was saying, no, that's not the case. And God here says, yes, Job was right in what he said of me to the friends. So in this issue, Job was right. That suffering is not just a result of sin and that um, his suffering was not the result of some particular sin that he committed against God. Are you okay with that? Did you understand what I'm saying? With how Job was right, even though he was wrong at other times as well. On this issue that he's confronted the friends about, Job was right and the friends were wrong. And then I think some of the most beautiful part of the book is really here in verse 8, where God restores Job's counselors. If you look at verse 8, it says, Now therefore, take yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. They are instructed to make atonement for their sin against God, and Job, uh, the thing is God and Job, but Job is also called by God to act as the intercessory uh, for them. He's intercessor for them. He's to act in an intercessory manner on behalf of the friends who wronged him. Um, can you think of, does it bring anybody else to mind when you think of somebody who was sinned against and yet is called upon to intercede for those who sinned against him, it's it's almost impossible. No, Adam said no. It is almost impossible not to be reminded of the other servant of the Lord, who made atonement for his friends and intercedes for his people. And he stands before the Lord, interceding for us as we sin against him. He says, "Lord, do not, no, Father, do not hold that against them." Though it may not be the strict meaning of the passage. Now, all the Bible reminds us of Christ, and I think this verse shows us what Christ does as we look at Job. Also, 
God specifically called Job to serve as mediator between God and his friends. You see the irony here? So Job is supposed to be the mediator between God. Remember what Job spent a lot of the book asking for? A mediator that would go between him and God and show God that Job is right. And now God says, now that you know who I truly am and you know the truth of your sin, you are going to be the mediator now between uh, them and I. And Job was called to pray for them. Um, and that's different. You all know, you all have been sinned against. And you know how hard it is to pray God's blessing upon those who have sinned against us. And that's what Job is called to do. And, and the implication is that Job does do that. Now he's no longer going to say, nah, God, he's not going to question God anymore. You know, he's going to say, how high on the way up? When God tells him to do something. And Job, the, the idea we have here that we left with is that Job was also supposed to sacrifice the animals they brought. Uh, he was supposed to be their priest in that sacrifice. So Job was supposed to be the mediator between them and God, much like our Lord Jesus Christ did, and thus for his people. Remember what Timothy said, Paul says to Timothy concerning Christ in 1 Timothy 2? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And notice that Job's friends show their repentance. Do you see their repentance there? It's in verse 9. Look at verse 9 and tell me if you can see their repentance. I'll read it aloud. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord commanded them. For the Lord had accepted Job. Do you see the repentance here? It's in their action, right? They, they immediately obeyed God, what God had commanded them to do, demonstrating that they had been, uh, that they repented. And, and by doing that, it also implies that God has forgiven them. And to me, this section of the epilogue, not just to me, but to, I think, in general, this section of the epilogue is very encouraging because it displays a very basic element of the gospel. It reminds us that there is hope of restoration for all sinners. There is never a moment of hopelessness. As long as somebody is breathing, there is hope for them. And this text really echoes the truth spoken by David in Psalm 103, where it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Our God is gracious, and there is always hope for a sinner because of the disposition of God towards those who come to Him. Now, while God's wrath was kindled against the three friends and while they were wrong in their teaching about God, God nevertheless provided a path for forgiveness and restoration for them. And God puts that before every sinner. There's a general call of the gospel that goes out and lays out and invites the sinner to come to Christ and promises them that if they come, the Lord will receive them. And we see that here with the friends of Job. And then in verses 12 through 17, we have Job's restoration, which um, 
you'd be amazed how many commentaries say that the people, they don't, they, often the people are not named, but they say the people are disappointed with the end. That it would be more consistent with the book if Job did not receive stuff back. That Job just ended, in, that died in misery. That would be more consistent because they say that the idea of, of giving all these things to Job kind of perpetuates the idea that the righteous is always blessed because then Job will be blessed at the end. But I don't think that's the case here. In Job's restoration, we see the riches of God's grace, where he didn't have to do any of that. He could have killed Job at the end and still be a good, righteous God, and yet he graciously restores all these things to Job. Job's restoration at the end of the book is provided not to answer all of our questions about the specific suffering experience in Job's life, but to reveal to us an overarching and universal principle of righteous suffering in the lives of all believers. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Look at verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> Actually, uh, I'm going to move up. I'm going to go to verse 10. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And all his brothers and all his sisters and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. Now, I don't know how much of a blessing that is, right? These are the fair-weather friends that once things went bad, they took off. And now that he has twice as much, they are back to eat uh, at his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. At least they paid for their food, right? So that's good. Verse 12, Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. So that's great, right? That's more than what he had in the beginning. And then it says, he also had seven sons and three daughters, which is exactly the same amount as in the beginning. But this is not a replacement. There's no amount of new children that the Lord can give to somebody that will make them forget the ones that they lost. Right? So this is not all rainbows and unicorns or whatever it is, the expression, how the expression goes. Job still going to live the rest of his life with the pain of having lost ten children for a reason he's not aware of. But now he's willing to trust that the Lord knew what he was, he was doing. And he called the name of the first Jemima. We're not allowed to call anybody that anymore, I guess. <laughs> the name of the second is Keziah. And the name of the third is Karen Hapik. In all the land that were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job, and the father gave them as inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. It's likely that Job lived longer than Abraham. They're, remember we, when we first began, we saw that they were um, living about the same time. And Job lived longer, seems like, than Abraham. But this is what I want us to see tonight as we finish. By giving Job a double portion, God was showing that he is planning a disproportionate response of blessing 
for all who suffer righteously. There is a disproportionate response of blessing for those who suffer righteously, especially if the suffering is for the gospel's sake. And you're going to say, oh man, he's going to come all Joe Osteen on us. That, uh, <laughs> no, because that double portion is actually in the life to come. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 and 18, after describing immeasurable struggles and sufferings, including betrayal and so on, Paul says this, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. <clears throat> By giving Job a double portion, God communicates to us that any righteous suffering we endure in this world is ultimately working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. <clears throat> That's what suffering is doing for us right now. I was going to turn to 1 Peter 2, but I encourage you later tonight to turn to 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 25, and take a look at that, because I just want to briefly mention three final lessons from the book of Job. Three things for us to take home as we finish this book tonight. The first one is this. The righteous does suffer in this life, and the wicked, the wicked does prosper in this life. We learned that from the book of Job. The, the, the righteous suffers, and the wicked prospers. doesn't mean that every righteous suffer and every wicked prospers, but that is around. That's the struggle of Psalm 73. You can read that as well if you'd like. This book clears up the false notion that suffering is always tied up to personal sin. Right? So the, the righteous suffer. So suffering is not always tied up to personal sin. And because of that, it helps us be more compassionate when we deal with suffering people. Because it may not be just because they screwed up. Or you're just getting what you sowed. You're reaping what you sowed. Maybe, maybe not. The righteous also suffers. And it helps people who are suffering by bringing meaning to their suffering. Even though we may not know the precise reason for our suffering, we do know that God has a purpose in our suffering that, and, he, that, and that He's sovereign over it. That's what we learn in this book. Sadly, Job teaches us how to be spiritually prepared for suffering. I don't know that Job is the best book for you to read while you're going through suffering, but it does help us prepare for suffering. I don't think there is any greater book, better book to read during suffering than the Psalms. That's where sufferers park, is in the Psalms, as you read it through the cross. Not, not just as an Old Testament thing apart from the cross, but as you read the Psalms through the cross. But Job does prepare us preventatively, ahead of time, for suffering. suffering. Remember how the Holy Spirit describes Job in chapter 1, as he's getting ready, even though he didn't know that, as he's getting ready to suffer? Remember all those things that he's doing? He's praying. He's offering sacrifices. He's interceding for his kids. What are those things but the ordinary means of grace? 
He prayed, he offered sacrifices, which were the means of grace available to him. And brothers and sisters, the best way to prepare for suffering is to walk ordinarily with the Lord in the ways that he established for us to be strengthened in our faith. He's not looking for the supernatural, the extraordinary out there, but the ordinary means of grace, the reading, especially the preaching of the word in the Lord's day, praying, participating in the Lord's Supper, witnessing baptisms among us, fellowship with the body of Christ. Those are the ways we prepare for suffering, because these are the ordinary ways that God prepares His church for everything that He calls it to do. And thirdly, Job teaches us to look to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate answer for suffering. He's the ultimate answer to any suffering. So Job points us to Jesus, the cross of Jesus. Because how does God deal with suffering, with evil, with wickedness on the cross? That's how he deals with it. And one of the most powerful ways this book does that, points us to Christ, is by establishing the clear principle that a righteous man, one who is blameless before God, may suffer terribly according to the good and redemptive purpose of a loving and just God. God Job's suffering was redemptive. There is those purpose, there was fruit that came out of it. The same with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did that, the Lord Jesus Christ did that for us. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous. And because he suffered, because Christ suffered well, we too can suffer well. And that's the point that I was going to make out of First Timothy, First Peter, chapter two, that we are called to suffer well because our Lord suffered for us, and He equips us to be able to suffer well, just like He did. So here we have it. It's a majestic book. I wish we all were Hebrew scholar. I'm not one. Scott is is a Hebrew scholar, but I'm told. I mean, I can read the Hebrew, but not, not enough to appreciate it. But I'm told this is one of the most majestic, poetic book in the whole of the Bible. But even in that English translation, see, see how great this book is. And last week, Chris said, Chris Newton, after saying, I didn't realize that Job could be so practical. Remember, all of scriptures are inspired by God and are profitable for us, for instruction, for correction, for rebuke, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every. Good work. And that includes the book of Job. Any questions or comments before we finish? Chris, uh, you're going to ask me what, what verse was all that? So, <laughs> so verse 7 and 8, when, uh, can you remind me why the purpose for the context why Job, God is saying Job was right, the servants or his friends. So is it in, in one, he's talking, what was, the, what, what was the message of the friends? Uh, you're suffering because you sinned. Uh, uh, retribution theology. Yeah. You're suffering because you're sinning. And Job said, no. The, suff- the, the righteous may suffer as well. Even though he was shaking specifically. Yeah, so um, he's comparing, God is comparing him to the friends. What the friends were saying was wrong, and what Job was saying about the same subject was correct. No, he, from the very beginning he's been saying that. That, that no, sin does not have to be the only explanation for suffering, and that the righteous can suffer as well. Anything else? Does it make sense, Chris? Are you okay? Okay. So let's pray, and we'll be dismissed.
Father in heaven, thank you for this book. Thank you that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness, faith and practice. We thank you that you give us what we need to be equipped for every good work. We thank you that these are inspired books, free of mistakes, given to us through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would love this book. We pray that we would live this book. We pray that we would hear your word and do it as we are called to do. And we thank you that you give us grace and you forgive us when we fail. Father, we pray that you'd, your grace would be always sufficient for us and that in our weakness we would be strong because we would rely on you for asking in Jesus' name. Amen.